Initially, my department had planned to give each bank a numerical grade of 1 to 100, 100 being a perfect score. But then we decided that that might unfairly stigmatize banks who scored low on the test because they followed reckless lending practices or were otherwise not good at banking. <laughs> so we changed to a simple pass-fail system. However, on reflection, a few of us felt that that system was too rigid. So we changed it once again to pass, pass with an asterisk. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. It's May 11th, 2009. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. We're both here in Planet Money headquarters in New York City. That was Will Forte from Saturday Night Live doing his Tim Geithner impression up at the top. Um, and we have a full and good show today. We'll be talking about suing the bastards. That's right. Specifically the bastards who caused the financial crisis, only, unfortunately, it's other bastards who caused the financial crisis doing the suing, but that's okay. <laughs> bastards <laughs> suing bastards. Right. Uh, and we'll talk to a securities lawyer about the pros and cons of that. Uh, but first, Adam, our Planet Money indicator, a personal one for us. The indicator is over 280 and counting. Right. And uh, probably well above that by the time you hear this podcast. That is the number of comments that we got about Friday's podcast. People, many people, were not happy with the way I handled my interview with Elizabeth Warren. And boy, did they let me have it in the comments section of the blog. Our blog, of course, is www.npr.org slash money. Um, Elizabeth Warren, for those of you who didn't hear that interview or don't know, is the chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel for the TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program. Uh, basically, she's Congress's bailout monitor. That interview got a little heated. Uh, we played a bit of the heated exchange here on the podcast. And uh, Laura, Planet Money's Laura Conway, is here, and she can sort of fill us in on what happened next. Yeah, Adam, I think you basically um, blew up the blog. I know. I don't think. Have we ever had this many comments? Uh, no. We haven't. And uh, I kind of knew we were in for it on Friday when I went home and there were something like 67 comments. I think the podcast had been up for, you know, an hour. Right. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and people called you all kinds of things. And I'm glad to say that really only a few of them were things that were not actually allowed to post on NPR. Like there was that guy who called No. Me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like that one? Yeah. Well done, guys. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> but there were any number of people who said, and this was upsetting to me personally, that we had been rude to a guest. Um, you never like to hear that. I called up a listener who's been on our show before. Her name's Renee Rico. She happens to be a Presbyterian pastor in California who describes herself as an econophile. She really loves economics and understands the counterintuitive stuff that goes on inside economics. And Renee Rico said, you know what, you guys, you kind of blew that. Part of it, Adam, was just the way you sounded, I think, just the tone of the interview itself. I couldn't imagine him arguing with Tim Geithner. I don't, he was so careful, deferential in his interview with Tim Geithner, and I felt like, what's with that? 
know, I mean, my original comment, I think, even when I heard the teaser on the blog was, it sounds like Adam is trying to get an upper hand on the interview with a woman smarter than he. <laughs> yeah, and clearly with the Geithner interview, um, I was more deferential. I, I like to think I tried to push Geithner, but I, I certainly didn't talk over him. I was not rude to him. And, and you know, and I really do regret that. I regret the, the, uh, that part of the Elizabeth Warren interview. Well, the other thing about it, Adam, is that Renee Rico and a lot of people like her just like some of what Warren has to say. And Renee Rico kind of put it for me like this. She wants to hear Warren's arguments about the lived economy, meaning people's homes and jobs and credit card debt. She wants to hear those arguments, and then she wants us to follow them up so that we can find the weaknesses or strengths or whatever in those arguments. Right. And I think that's my biggest regret. I feel like that's how I let down the listeners the most is I just didn't give Warren a chance to lay out her views calmly, dispassionately or passionately and, uh, you know, and then move on from there. And, you know, that's certainly what we will be doing in the future. I think it's safe to say all of us here at Planet Money learned a great deal from this. Yeah. One of the things I learned, and I just want to say this, is that it is not necessary for all of us in the audience or here on the show to agree about that interview, any given interview, or the 280 comments on the blog. But you Planet Money listeners have really kept the discussion on there at quite a high level. I've never seen a discussion online go on for that long with as few comments as had to come down. Um, it's really civil for the most part. and Yeah, I mean, there was only one guy who called me. Uh... <laughs> Stop, and that got deleted. <laughs> Don't, yeah, PG on the blog, people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it really is. Like you see, you know, you can, especially on the Internet, like, you know, where it's sort of bare knuckle, no holds barred fighting. You know, it was really, it was really impressive. Right. It was substantive. Yeah. It was um, people responding to each other's views. I mean, I, yeah, I found it very instructive and, very, and, and, and I really appreciated the intelligence of the discussion. It's a nice crowd. Thanks, guys. OK, so let's move on to the rest of the show here. The question on everybody's mind lately, it seems to me sort of out there, is um, who did what to cause this crisis, this financial crisis? Who's to blame here? Yeah, I mean, we're obsessed with it. Um, the nation is clearly obsessed with it, uh, not just in some broad general way. Oh, Wall Street's to blame. But what exactly did they do? Who did what? How did how did it get so wrong? What did they know? How guilty are they? And there's been dribs and drabs of revelations in Congress. There's been some nice articles in the press. But it seems like there's this one area that you and I have just recently kind of peeked into where there are right now hundreds and hundreds of people working all day, all weekend, all night, trying to figure out what went wrong. And since this is America, of course, we're talking about lawyers and lawsuits. Right. And we uh, talked to one of those lawyers, a security lawyer named Zachary Rosenbaum, who is currently working to try to figure this out himself. Now, he couldn't talk to us about the cases he himself is working on. But he did show us another case that's underway right right now. I'm looking at 42 pages of, of you know, what some may look at as legal mumbo-jumbo, but, but nonetheless is the description by MBIA, a large mortgage insurer um, and guarantor, of the reasons why it believes it was defrauded. So the legal mumbo-jumbo he's talking about might be one of our best shots right now at figuring out exactly what went wrong, who did what, who's to blame. And 
that is so rare right now. Yeah, exactly. Rosenbaum said that Wall Street's code of silence is worse than the one the cops have or the mob. Wall Street folks don't talk about stuff like this, and they normally don't sue each other over things like this either. Uh, They don't want to admit that they screwed up. But right now, everyone knows that everyone screwed up so bad that it's actually not that scary to sue right now. Right. So so the case that Rosenbaum's showing us um, is MBIA, a major force on Wall Street, suing Merrill Lynch, also obviously a major force on Wall Street. MBIA sells insurance. It's a special kind of insurance on bonds that folks like Merrill Lynch create. In this case, they were selling insurance on CDOs and Probably everyone who listens to this show have heard of those. They're now called toxic waste. Right. And Rosenbaum said that MBIA sold its insurance on these CDOs for very little money because Merrill Lynch convinced MBIA that the CDOs they were issuing were totally safe. And Rosenbaum actually gets a little complicated. So he used something sitting on the table in front of him as as a metaphor to explain. I tell you. I'm, I'm going to sell you this this bottle of Poland Spring water. And Poland Spring, as you know, is some of the best water that, you, that money can buy. And it comes from the springs from Maine or wherever they advertise. And there is absolutely no risk to you that this is anything but Poland Spring water. So you just pay you, – you, for a nominal fee, a very nominal fee, why would you need a lot of money to guarantee that this is good water? Um, because it's almost money for nothing. So I'm going to pay you a nominal fee, and I'm going to get your guarantee that this is Poland Spring water, and this is great water. As it turns out, it's not Poland Spring water. It's sewer water. And the, the, the analogy is that Merrill Lynch, in this case, knew it was sewer water, was in a better position than MBIA, notwithstanding MBIA's sophistication, to know it was sewer water. And MBIA, thinking it was guaranteeing Poland Spring, guaranteed the sewer water. And MBIA is saying, hey, if we knew this was sewer water, we would have asked for a lot more money to guarantee it because sewer water is crappy. Either that or we wouldn't have gone near it because we couldn't guarantee sewer water. Okay, so Adam, obviously right now it's easy for anybody to say Merrill Lynch and a lot of others sold a lot of sewer water. But the hard thing is to prove that it was fraud because for it to be fraud, Merrill Lynch had to know it was sewer water back when they were first selling the stuff before the housing bubble popped and the whole financial crisis started. So the key, in essence, to most fraud claims is whether there was a misrepresentation uh, and whether a lie, a lie, a lie that you knew was a lie when you said it because there can't be an actionable misrepresentation of future fact. I can't tell you that it's going to be, you know, I, I know as a matter of fact it's going to be sunny tomorrow even though I know the forecast is rain, and be accused of, of fraud because it's a future fact. If I tell you I know the forecast is that it's going to be sunny tomorrow and I know the forecast is going to rain, that's different. But no one can, can make a, an affirmative present misrepresentation of a future fact. So it's got ha- to be when it occurred. And here, um, at its most simple level, the, the, you know, and I take you back to the example which is the Poland Spring bottle. The, the, the allegation is that, that Merrill, uh, it was able to know that sewer water was in the bottle while MBI thought, MBIA thought it was Poland Spring. And that, that, that in essence, is the claim. And that the fraud or the, the, the lie, as it's alleged, is that it was Poland Spring when I knew it was sewer water. 
Merrill Lynch has three lines of defense, three ways of saying MBIA is not going to win this lawsuit. Defense number one is, hey, we didn't know that was sewer water. We thought it was perfectly delicious water. We were taken by surprise like everyone else. Right. Defense number two, Merrill Lynch can say, MBIA, you are as sophisticated as we are. You've hired the same fancy physicists and analysts. You have all the stuff we have. If it was sewer water, you should have known it too. And then there's defense number three. MBIA, we told you it might be sewer water. <laughs> I mean, we gave you hundreds of pages of warnings. Any buyer of, of a CDO um, receives what's called an offering circular. And one significant piece of any offering circular is, 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 is hundreds of disclaimers, you know, usually comprising anywhere from 75 to 100 and something pages of disclaimers um, called risk factors. And one of the elements of any fraud claim is that you need to have reasonably relied on the misrepresentation. And often in the face of a fraud claim, the, the seller of the note will say, you could not possibly have reasonably relied on my alleged misrepresentation of some fact because the risk factors tell you so clearly all of the risks associated with, with this transaction. Therefore, even if I said something that was a misrepresentation, you couldn't possibly have reasonably relied on it. Therefore, your case should be dismissed. You know, Adam, this makes me think just when you said that, I've got to start reading all those software agreements that I'm clicking on every day. <laughs> when, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> One day the people from iTunes are going to show up and say that they own my house and firstborn child. Right. That, that's my terror too. Right. All right. But Alex, you and I do not happen to care whether MBIA is right or Merrill Lynch is right, right? I mean, that's between them and whatever. I don't care. The case that we care about is the people of the United States versus Wall Street. We want to find out what did Wall Street do wrong and why are we the taxpayers on the hook for it? Exactly. And Congress is clearly heard that sentiment voiced and they're they're making noise about doing something just like that. They're talking about holding these hearings. They've bandied about names of people who will lead the hearings. Paul Volcker is one name. Sandra Day O'Connor, the retired Supreme Court justice, is another. But Rosenbaum says there are dozens of these lawsuits, these big, huge lawsuits going on right now. Wall Street insiders are right now being forced to testify under oath about exactly what they did wrong. We do not need to wait for Congress if these court cases make their way to trial. My opinion as, as a litigator, I think they're better. I better. think the, these are uh, – it, 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 there's an economic angle to it, which is you know, you're, you're properly incentivized because you want to recoup some of your money. That puts you in a pretty good position – to go learn the truth. And that, and that is, you know, at our most idealistic level, what a trial is. It's a search for the truth. And, and that's why the American system allows discovery, because we want you to have the best tools in your belt to, to find the truth. And part of that is going and getting the information from those you're suing. All right. Well, we can't wait to read more of this. And we're going to link to some of these uh, documents on the blog and make some pretty fascinating reading. Also makes some really boring reading. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, surprisingly long, legal, long cases? legal cases about securities fraud. Right. Um, but but there, there's some juicy tidbits. Maybe we can highlight the juicy parts for the people. Oh, that would be an excellent value added. Okay. I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> and um, of course, do go to npr.org slash money. Leave your comments. We 
very much are listening. You can also send emails to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you very much for listening.